This week on A Lively Experiment, the Senate Judiciary Committee votes to reject a highly charged bill, and Governor Raimondo delivers two victories to Rhode Island's public sector unions. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... For 30 years, A Lively Experiment has been helping us understand the most important issues facing Rhode Islanders. Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to be a sponsor of this great program. Joining us this week, Wendy Schiller, a political science professor at Brown University, political analyst for the Public's Radio, Scott McKay, and Pat Ford, chairman of the Libertarian Party, Rhode Island. Hello, everyone. I'm Kim Keough. Thanks for joining us. It has been a tumultuous week politically with the controversial abortion bill taking center stage following months, if not years of campaigning to protect the legality of abortion in Rhode Island. The state judiciary committee voted five to four against legislation to preserve the landmark 1973 Roe versus Wade rule in the state. Emotions have been running high both sides since the vote Tuesday. Um, especially in light of everything that's going on across the country, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, Louisiana. Wendy, I want to start with you. What are the sticking points on this bill right now? Well, in terms of perception, it seems like the sticking points are, will this codification of the right to have an abortion allow you to have an abortion up until through the ninth month, for example? You know, well beyond the partial birth abortion ban, well beyond, you know, where most people think about terminating a pregnancy, and only with the exception for the life of the mother. And so I think that's the battle, sort of like all the pro-choice side says, no, 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 that's not what we're trying to do. And the pro-life side is saying, yes, that's exactly what the result of this bill will be. Can't we compromise to make sure that can happen. And so, you know, you have both intense moral, religious, political, um, ideological preferences, but you also have, you know, at stake interest group politics between the pro-choice movement and the pro-life movement. And you have the Republican Party uh, across the the country right now thinking this is really a strong issue on on their side. And so what's uh, difficult for Rhode Island is that this is a fight that's happening within the Democratic Party. And I think it reflects really on some, a lot, both sides, sincere differences in what this means and what it will allow people to do. And in the end, these really draconian restrictions that we're seeing in Alabama and Georgia, they affect poor and low income and working women most uh, dip- most um, strongly. And it's something that's got lost in the debate. Somebody who's 38 years old, who has three kids already and has an accidental pregnancy, they can't afford the other kid. You know, what does the state have the right to tell them and limit their choices? I mean, that's the kind of person I think we have to be thinking about the- in this debate. And I'm not sure that person has been represented. Well, very libertarian of you. My frustration is the uh, intransigence, if you will, of the pro-life movement. I I happen to be uh, pro-choice. I'm sorry. I'm at the pro-choice movement. Uh, The unwillingness to negotiate at any level uh, created the opportunity for the pro-life movement to paint them as being arrogant. And in doing so, I think they limited, I think, was was a worthwhile goal. Um, I, too, believe that the state obviously should not be allowed to dictate reproductive choices. And I agree that by doing so, you know, you've effectively created a, a regressive tax, if you will, on the working poor. So I personally am, am troubled by the issue. I, I find very often that abortion has become a method of birth control. But at the same time, the state needs to move away from it. The state needs to open it up and the state needs to create a level playing field. On the other hand, progressive Democrats tone down the rhetoric a little bit actually reach out to different communities and explain, 
your belief system, you might have a better way of going. Scotty? It's a national issue, basically. It's happening all over the country, as both Tom and Wendy alluded to. Uh, you're looking at basically uh, the, on the Republican side and the folks who are anti-abortion, they're trying to find a way to get the Supreme Court, get a case up there that will allow the court to chip away, chip away at the protections that have been there since 1973. And yes, the rhetoric's really over the top on both sides. I mean, it's, you know, Tom says the pro-choice people should be compromising more and shouldn't be so strident. But you know what? There's people on the other side who are screaming at, you know, 16-year-old girls going to, to get a, uh, you know, health care at Planned Parenthood. And they got, you know, dead baby fetuses in there screaming at these people. It's This is just a cultural issue, and it won't go away, and you can't be almost pregnant. And it's very, very difficult to compromise. I also want to point out, too, that both sides, and the cynic in me would like to point out, that both sides are using this for aggressive fundraising and aggressive posturing within their basis. So uh, it, it's become a litmus choice, a litmus position, a litmus test at every level for both sides. And um, again, that's why I appreciate your libertarian aspect on well, this. Pat, always recruiting. <laughs> um, no, I, I think what, what Pat's point and Scott's point, but let's also keep, uh, I think tactics is exactly right. So the fact is that millennials are women between the ages of 20 and 35. This is not their battle. They didn't grow up in the 80s after this first came into effect, after Roe v. Wade, 70s and 80s. They think this is normal standard, you should have access. They also have access to birth control. So what happens is the more the higher up you go in the income chain, the more likely it is the kids are either, they have birth control or they have options. The lower you go in the income chain, then the fewer options for all sorts of reasons that uh, women and younger women have. And so the problem for the progressives is that it's billed as this sort of middle to upper class white woman's issue. Issue, when in fact the people who will be most affected by it are usually women who are poor and women who are uh, of color. So that to me is the biggest mistake of all in this progressive movement is that you don't understand that you know the, the you're, you're it's a it's an old person's fight. That's what mm-hmm. young people think, but it's not. It actually affects a lot of women. And exactly what you said, it's a regressive tax on the poor. Uh, to make this unavailable. And I agree that there are limits. I think most reasonable people would say that, you know, uh, after the sixth or seventh month, you have to have a serious conversation about this, or the fifth month. This is a serious thing. I don't think people are casual about it. But I do think that the pro-life and pro-choice, you know, sides, they, they have been around a long time, and they, they want to stay in existence, and they refuse to compromise because they think they'll lose their supporters. But in fact, I think that the same way we have to adapt to all sorts of changes in society, they've got to update, and they have to really change the nature of the conversation so that people can understand how this really affects um, people that they don't even really think about, that they don't see in this debate. I don't see that happening for one reason. The anti-abortion people uh, are not against partial birth abortion. They're against all abortions. And that's one of the problems here. There's, they just aren't into compromising at all. This is a wedge issue for them. Now the other side, and I think Pat is right, this has been become the culture war. It's become fundraising. It's become part of the uh, perpetual campaign that just goes on and on and on. And it, it's been going on since 1973. And some of us perhaps were naive enough to think that maybe this would settle it. But it's probably too bad that this issue got decided by judicial fiat rather than through democracy, through the legislative uh, process. I think what's also interesting, 
Wendy, you and I were talking in the green room earlier, and it's something that didn't really occur to me. Some of these other states in the country that are really being aggressive with their legislation, you had mentioned that they're not looking at it long term in, sen- in the sense of people aren't going, millennials aren't going to stay living in their right. state. And they're going to be, it's, right. it's almost like a flight type of uh, type of uh, thing that they're going to right. be. I mean, Kim, that's that's a really important point, is that not only will sort of millennials or women who believe in these rights not go to Georgia or Alabama for work employment, but progressive companies. And a lot of tech companies are, quote unquote, on the libertarian side, actually, or progressive. So they're not going to headquarter there. And then you're going to start to say, well, if you have a, a business that's headquartered in Alabama, I'm not going to do business with you or I'm not going to buy your product. And we've seen these kinds of boycotts work in the past. So the question is, the ones that lead the boycotts the most are social media consumers who are younger women, younger men and women, and they, at at the moment, do not see this as a crisis problem for themselves. So this may not happen for a while, but down the road, you can think, I'm a company, I'm not going to locate there. I think you may end up with a national quilt work of differing laws, state by state. It looks like the Supreme Court, I don't think they'd do anything as crazy, particularly before the 2020 election as enshrine these Alabama or some of these really, really extreme laws uh, as far as the Roe v. Wade. However, I mean, Clarence Thomas just pointed out, he the other day, he basically put a blueprint out for how he would overturn, how you would, do, and they have five people who probably will do it. There's no more Sandra Day O'Connors. There's no more Anthony Kennedys, who over the years, those kinds of folks who were basically preserved Roe. Over the years. And last week, it's interesting because just last week you had on a uh, a lively experiment dedicated to effectively millennials. And I think possibly the biggest challenge politically facing millennials is that we, and I use the term allegedly, live in a post-racial, post-homophobic, post-abortion society. And these individuals have never really had to engage in the type of street battles Mm -hmm. that folks in our generation engage in Vietnam, the Civil Rights Acts. None of that. They, they, they really haven't had to, you know, really bleed for any of the rights that they've assumed. I wonder if they're taking them for granted. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, because I think you had mentioned earlier, Scott, we, those of us who grew up during that time, we just assumed that this was going to be the status quo. And now the, there, is a, there is a real chance that it could be overturned if, yeah. they, if, if they can get it to the Supreme Court. It also affects 2020 Doug Jones, who won the special election in Alabama, Uh, He's up for re-election in 2020 in Alabama, and he's a Democrat. And so this is going to be a huge part of his campaign. And my guess is that he's going to get a lot of money from outside sources basically on this issue. And that's going to be a barometer for what Alabama thinks. The legislature passed this, but we just have to, we don't know quite yet exactly what the whole state of Alabama thinks. But, you know, I think you're right. There'll be, you know, we'll revert to a situation as we had in the Civil Rights, uh, before the Civil Rights Act, where you have this right in some states and you don't have this right in others. And I think that's untenable for the long haul, but I think it's going to take much bigger activism than they're prepared for. I think you're right. And I think one thing about Rhode Island and New England uh, I would argue that Rhode Island has been pro-choice, or excuse me, <clears throat> since the 1980s. We had a referendum here on a constitutional convention, uh, constitutional amendment that actually banned all abortions. And it was totally unconstitutional. Uh, but the constitutional convention did it. They put it up for referendum. And it went down in flames. It went down two to one. And that was 1986. So I think... If you put this bill to the full Senate, don't forget now, we're talking about the Judiciary Committee and one vote. If you put this bill to the full Senate, it would pass. 
preserving Roe v. Wade. You saw what the margin was in the House. It was a pretty healthy margin. And the Senate's not that much different. Do you think, what do you see changing over the next couple of weeks? Anything? What do you see well, happening? I mean, if, I, if I'm Jurio, you know, I basically say, listen, I'm going to put it to the floor. And if it wins, it wins. And if it, pass, if it fails, it fails. But at least I'm not the guy who blocked it. You know, if Mattiello went to the mat and got it through the House, I'm going to give it to the Senate. And if the Senate says yes, the Senate says yes. If it says no, it says no. But that's what I would do if I were him now. I wouldn't be the guy who doesn't let it go to the floor because it got yeah, to the If you're Senator uh, Ruggiero, the Senate president, if you're Mary Ellen Goodwin, Senator from Providence, if you're Senator McCaffrey from Warwick, I don't think you want your leadership to die on this hill. Okay. So let's move on to the, the, the other big issue this, this week was the governor signed the so-called Evergreen Contracts legislation into law, but she allowed the firefighters' overtime bill to go without her signature. I don't know what that means. Um, anyone? Well, you guys want to fill me in on that one? For, 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 first of all, the biggest losers in this <clears throat> are clearly the mayors. Uh, in town administrators, uh, guys they like feel betrayed. Yeah, well, feel, right. But well, well, first on a political level, since yeah. we're a political show, the mayors have to understand. After this, guys like Charlie Lombardi, who wasn't even invited to the initial meeting with uh, with the governor, that their voices simply don't count anymore in this in this political environment. That they're going to be, you know, you'll you'll you know, please sir, may I have another? Uh, or in the words of the immortal Judge Smell, you'll you know, you'll like it, or whatever. It. Um, the second biggest loser, obviously, is the taxpayer. It's been my contention for almost 20 years, and I've kind of soft-pedaled this lately as I kind of watch Rhode Island you know, sink, is that, unfortunately, when it comes to fiscal discipline, that the only thing that this ever going to correct the ship, if they will, is going to be some level of a high level of municipal bankruptcy. Because people are waking up right now shocked to find out that Warwick is sinking. People already knew Providence is sinking. And um, this really, I think, just uh, seals the deal. You will, I believe, my prediction is, three to five years, you'll see a number of the municipalities entering this sort of protracted death spiral that we created in the legislature <laughs> a few years ago. Scott? Much to do about not a whole lot. Most private sector contracts have this. This is what I call the keep talking bill. It just makes negotiations. You just have to keep talking until you get a settlement. And if you're in the middle of a settlement, all it really does is it says if you're a teacher, say, municipal employee, you know, you can't, I can't, unless I'm out to bust the union, I don't see why you're against this. Well, but here's the problem. The difference between private and public unions, and, and I generally support unions, I see them as a form of, you know, particularly post-Janus, a form of free association, is that private unions, if they force the hand of the manufacturer, say, for example, General Motors, there is the marketplace will rule on them and force them into bankruptcy. Public unions, <clears throat> excuse me, we've seen, I, I mean, when was the last time you saw a layoff or a job cut in Providence? They effectively can continue to print their own money. So the problem is, is that we've reached a critical mass, particularly in the city of Providence, where one significant downturn in the stock market will render the pension fund uh, obsolete, a takeover by the state, continuing loss of tax base, and an inability by cities and towns to negotiate at any level or to... be blunt, force concessions. I don't see it as a union-busting bill, but at some point, you have to use something to force concessions. Yes, I think one thing, I wish the League of Cities and Towns would go up there and say, look, we got some really serious problems here. We have pension problems all over the state. We've got too many, too many firefighters is a good example. Why doesn't Pawtucket and 
Central Falls have one fire department. I don't get that. How come Aquidneck Island doesn't have one school district? Because of politics. I understand no, no, that. No individual. Listen, we've got a mayor in Pawtucket who is, as they say, denying a river in Egypt. The, the, <laughs> the, the fire department in Pawtucket is in desperate shape despite the hard work of the people who work there. And don't think for a moment in Warwick that you, Scott Abadesian didn't hide as much as he could, all right, to basically before he could get out of town. You know, you've got mayors who are desperate, in a sense, to keep the lights off not expose all of these evils because they're playing, you know, political Harry Carey with the with the public unions. It's it's nuts. It's well, absolutely were nuts. any of you surprised with what the governor that she I, signed I, it? I I thought this is you know when people said she's looking at sort of a higher office ambition eventually. Um, I think she's dedicated to the state of Rhode Island. I think she's going to uh, uh, do her very best. However, to me, you know, signing this bill was a way of insulating herself just in case she makes the VP shortlist. Now, the VP shortlist, if the economy starts to go south in Rhode Island, she'll be off the list. However, if they're looking for a quote-unquote woman who's not overly super liberal, uh, who can raise some money uh, from uh, on the ticket if one of the 22 other people running doesn't become the VP, you know, she puts herself in the running by signing this bill. If she had vetoed it and picked a fight with the unions, she would have been off the list. You can't be the VP in the Democratic Party, She's, either now or 2024, if you've done this. So the, I, I, I think that, to me, the only motivation, given her record on public unions and all that she has battled with public unions, it seemed very surprising to me, except for that motivation. Well, don't forget, she's also now head of the DGA. I mean, right. just last Democrat week. Democratic Governors right. Association. And right. just last week, she's there with Governor Cuomo in New York, the governor of New Jersey. These are big, big, big fundraising folks. And obviously, you want labor backing. It's almost like... If you're a Republican, you want the Koch brothers. And if you're... But, but Pat is, I, mean, I think your point is so well taken. And it's just, it's all about the way we fiscally arrange things, right? Property taxes, people get very upset because they get that check, they see it. You know, and your income tax at the state level is pretty high in Rhode Island. So, oh, we can't raise the sales tax, that's regressive. But then somehow public spending has exploded. And it's exploded in Rhode Island, exploded everywhere. And I, I do think that public um, union uh, employees, civil employees are the punching bag. I don't think it's fair that they get the brunt of this. However, there has to be an end point in public spending, reining in public spending. It's up to the voters and the politicians. It's true, but if you have a contract now, on the Evergreen thing, if you've got a contract, it's status quo. So this, the unions will never, ever accept a contract that takes them below the status quo, and now they don't have to. That's not true. It's given, only economics. But there's, a, but there's a significant percentage of the Rhode Island workforce at this point draws some type of sustenance from the state of Rhode Island and or right. affiliate right. communities. So there's simply in, in, un, the lack of will. There's no profiles of courage here at any level. All right, There's no will whatsoever to draw back and bring back, dial back, what, however, whatever cliche you want to apply, to municipal, state, and city spending. Mm-hmm. Now, simultaneously last week, the former editor of Bloomberg wrote an incredible pop piece about the governor uh, that was widely circulated, widely disparaged. Uh, I, I, you know, it, it's interesting because this is a tale of two cities, if I can take de Blasio's term. You've got uh, de Blasio and you've got Raimondo, <laughs> and both are completely in denial, both completely out of touch with how the electorate feels about them. Uh, well, you just won, Pat. And 52% she won with, from people who held their nose. She won a majority nose. of this. St- I'm tired of people saying this woman did not win. And she they did went not win. outright with a majority. 52% she, of an incredibly small electorate it's a majority. dominated by Last special interests. Last time she won, people said, oh, she didn't win a majority. She and that's won why, a majority. And that's why this state ultimately will have to enter some t- level of bankruptcy in order to move forward and remove themselves from their past sins because there is no disconnection 
between personal self-interest at the state employee level and government level I, and, and effectively their ability I, to run I'm government. Not, I'm not disputing your, project, your prediction that some municipalities may have to declare bankruptcy. I don't think the state of Rhode Island will ever declare bankruptcy. No, and also, you know, when you that. talk about public employees, mm-hmm. at the top, at the very top, the top managers in the state government are vastly underpaid compared to the private sector. Do you know anybody in the private sector who's like Mike DBAs, who's in charge of a $10 billion budget, who makes 135000 a year? I don't know anyone. Yeah, but well, well, look other... at the skill sets of the people working in, in public government at this point. They're not Mike especially... DBAs, look, he was head no, 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 of no, no. government That's affairs for Fidelity. Everybody makes choices. There's some nice uh, security that comes with a state job. There's power. There's political ambition. There, people make choices about what they do. I am not as concerned about paying people market value. If they want to go into the private sector, they'll leave government and go into the private sector. So I think there's a, a trade-off. You have to make it a comfortable and good position to be, work for government and have some sort of dedication to the public. But if you want to go work in the private sector and make more money, it is a free country still, and you can. So that's my... But there's a revolving door problem. Yeah. You get people who, you know, work in the government, and then uh, they flip and go become lobbyists. Well, look at the commerce, commerce, then they come back. Look at the Commerce Corporation. All right? You know, if, if you want an exercise in government fallibility and poor performance, really a walking disaster for the state... One has to question whether the people who are working there, who are acting essentially as investment bankers, have the skills necessary to do so. Because, quite frankly, if they had opportunities in the private sector, I mean, it's exponentially more money. Some of them go. Some of them go. All right. We should... To be continued, obviously, right? <laughs> Let's move on to um, another uh, issue that's going on. Is the legislative leaders proposed a uh, significant shakeup with the education in Rhode Island. They're proposing several things. They want to mimic Massachusetts. We've heard this a hundred times. What, what, what do you think is going to happen with that, Pat? Uh, well, first of all, what's fascinating about this is the continual growth of the power of the legislative branch of our government. You now you've got, you, you've always had a weak governorship. Now you've got the legislature walking directly into lines, lines of uh, positions, if you will, that were under the governor's control. Uh, personally, you know, I'm, I'm married to a teacher. I have two children. I'm blessed to say they've never spent a day in public education, and I mean that sincerely here in the state. And that's the reason they're successful. I don't want the state. <laughs> sorry, public education in the state is an abject failure. All right, and the test results finally prove it. Like seven kids from Glasgow got into Brown last year. Is that a terrible? Uh, of a percentage. Look at the test scores. What seven percent? What is that? Seven out of how many in the state? My God, it's you know we've had nothing less than an educational holocaust in this state. Oh, Listen, Lord. I don't want the state of Rhode Island dictating. Uh, what what the course requirements are, what the coursework is going to be. The notion that the state, <laughs> the state Department of Education, which is an absolute failure, is going to all of a sudden go to the towns and dictate classwork. I mean, well, that, that's no, no, insane. I think, well, so I think it's more administrative. They're looking to shake up the way the, the way think, administration. Yeah, I think they also just as you've been talking about. We have what thirty nine, um, you know, different governments, and we have consolidating school districts. Eventually, is going to be something we're going to have to do, and that's part of the step. You're right; it is an increase in in, in the state's intervention in the education system. Of, uh, but there's a lot of mis, there's not um, um, there's a lot of inefficiency in the system, and also for education, if Rhode Island made an economy that said 
said, you know, if we could build an economy where people want to stay here and you go to and you go to school in Rhode Island and you know there's going to be a good job waiting for you in Rhode Island and there's a lot of examples of that, I think that would improve motivation among students. I just don't think it's always administrators and teachers and parents' fault. I'm a teacher myself. Sometimes you need to have a certain kind of environment that gets kids really motivated about what they're going to learn. And Rhode Island's economy is not one where you think, oh, I'm going to grow up and stay in Rhode Island. So well, I think they go hand in hand. Every smart I, millennial I think, you know, seems to want to work in Boston or Brooklyn. <clears throat> I mean, and then they come back to Rhode Island when they want to raise a family. People do in their 30s. I know people have done that. Right. Uh, and so I think that Rhode Island, we have to capitalize more on our proximity to Boston, frankly, in New York. And if we can do some things to try to help close the biggest problem we have in our schools, I think, is the gap between the socioeconomic background of the parents and the achievement of the kids. And mm -hmm. this has been a real intractable problem from, frankly, Providence to Pasadena. And I wish that we could work on that better, particularly with uh, kids who come from families where perhaps English is not the yeah, home language. Right. And I think, you know, this has always been, we, you know, this has always been assimilation. And there's, there's study after study after study that, that you know, if you, if you uh, learn English and you are proficient in English, you make more money in life. And maybe that will change someday in America, but it's now the case. So it's we have to change. really work on it and we have to make sure that, you know, people are pushed out of their comfort zone and make sure that they're given the chances to be economically successful. And that's politically sometimes expensive and people don't always want to push the envelope on that. More control at the local level. I, I do like the idea that they're going to push more power back to local principles. Yeah. That works. But ultimately, the notion that the state, let's look at the federal government as an example. The DEA, uh, sorry, that's DEA. DOE. Oh God, the Department, Department of Education, of education yeah. all right, relative to its performance, does nothing but put, as the state does, unpaid mandates on local municipalities. Well, now she's taking, now the current Secretary of Education at the federal level is undoing all those mandates. So we'll see what happens. But... Well, um, but we, it's always been problematic. The Department of Education at the federal level has always been problematic. Looks like we, we may have to skip outrages and kudos. because <laughs> we have one more topic I do want to get to. I hope you guys don't mind. But I do want to get to the Health and Human Services Secretary. Um, the governor went all the way to Minnesota to find this, this person. Um, what are your thoughts on that, uh, Scotty? It's a burnout job. It's a really hard job. And one of the problems is when you look at this so-called explosion of government spending, and there has been increases, yeah. most of it is coming in social services and health care. Seventy percent of Rhode Island's state budget is basically aid to cities and towns for schools and health care and social services. And this yeah. is an expanding thing. We don't have control over health care costs. It's a national disgrace, frankly. But what's happening is that we just saw a study from Rand where private hospitals, private insurers are paying two and a half times what Medicare pays to the government. Sometimes I think Mike Fine, the former uh, health director in Rhode Island, is right when he says our health care system is basically a big jobs program. They well, that's true across the whole country. Mm -hmm. And Medicaid, the program for low income, the federal and state and county level uh, cost sharing program for low income individuals, uh, we, have a, we have a fairly generous package of Medicaid. Not every state covers what we cover. And again, that would be politically expensive to cut back on what we cover. And also, we have fairly extensive nursing home coverage under Medicaid in Rhode Island. We do. And I think we all probably can know a few people who put their parents in through Medicaid to the nursing home, and maybe sure. they're not so low income. I mean, there are a lot of ways in which you could chip away at some of the costs. There are. And, and let's draw a parallel. Department of Education and the explosive growth of health and human services. What's the common denominator? Big federal government involvement. 
All right. If you track it historically, uh, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when I paid $100, $50 a month for health care. It wasn't that long ago. And the only common denominator is, again, increasing regulation, uh, <clears throat> providing unlimited services for everyone, uh, the, the absence of any real tort reform at the, at the federal level, and the, all these restrictive interstate uh, uh, limitations. So yeah. it's a multi-track approach that has to take place. We have to stop giving away everything to everybody. We need to pi- drive down the regulations. We need tort reform. And it's got to happen soon because between this and oh, by the way, what's the other you know what's the other bubble we've created? The student loan bubble, all created by the federal government. Folks need to dial back the federal government. I think a lack of preventative care <clears throat> and really setting up a system, Canadian system, works better than ours. Uh, really, where you focus on taking care of the whole person, and you don't have so much emphasis on high tech. Hilburton but Hospitals. But there's 28 million people in Canada, give or take. We have 339 gonna, million people. So I'm I just think to interrupt. We're going to have <laughs> to do this again some other time. We can't so take that's all the time we have today. Thanks to our panel for a terrific discussion. And from all of us here at Rhode Island PBS, we appreciate you spending part of your day with us. Enjoy your weekend. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. For 30 years, a lively experiment has been helping us understand the most important issues facing Rhode Islanders. Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to be a sponsor of this great program. 